Hey, thanks again for coming back. I'm excited to launch the new season of the Artian podcast, Shaping Business Minds Throughout. I have to admit that since 2021 started, I have been thinking more and more about the role of art in our life, specifically in our business environment, technology and entrepreneurship world. The guests in this season are exciting. The way they think, what they do, and why they do what they do. Our first episode will discuss questions such as what is the role of art in design thinking era? Why one of the historical research institutions in the world has been working with artists? And why our speaker, Dunail Hernon, an experienced scientist, grew when he started to work with artists. Season 2 is starting right now. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Nir again. I hope the first quarter of 2021 started well. We have been working on the new season since last December. We have so many exciting speakers coming up, and we also get your comments and feedback. And for that, we are grateful. I thought today's episode will be appropriate to start the second season. Not only because Dunail is an excellent speaker, but also he leads one of the legendary projects between artists and engineers. Dunail Hernon, VP of Research and Innovation and the Head of Experiments of Art and Technology at Bell Labs Nokia, and a Fidel player as well. Hey Dunail, welcome to the Artian Podcast. Hey Nir, how are you? I'm great. First of all, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, and we are going to have an amazing conversation about art and technology. Maybe you can actually start in introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm an Irish person who lives in the U.S., and I currently head up an art and technology initiative at Bell Labs, Nokia Bell Labs. So my current title is Head of Experiments in Art and Technology. Yeah, already envy you, because it comes with a lot of history, and I think maybe it's a great opportunity to ask you, maybe you can tell us briefly what is Bell Labs, and then what is the history that Bell Labs actually have with art? Bell Labs is the research division of a parent company. So our current parent company is Nokia. You might know very well from the famous days of prior to smartphones, but Nokia now is a global leader in telecommunications equipment. Our parent company before that was Alcatel Lucent and then Lucent and then AT&T. So a long history of Bell Labs being the research division for these large corporate entities in telecommunications. And you should think of Bell Labs as people talk about R&D Bell Labs is largely just ore. We're focused on fundamental research, big ore, big research, and we look to solve problems that are 5, 10, 15, 20 years out. That's our mandate in Bell Labs. So Bell Labs is very famous for major scientific contributions to the world, such as the transistor, which is, you know, the forebearer of all modern electronics, you know, things like the laser, Unix, C language, C computer language. I could go on and on and on. Lots of world-changing inventions at Bell Labs. And Bell Labs today has nine Nobel Prizes in physics for their contributions to the scientific community. So a really rich history and really deep, deep scientific fundamental research and then translating that research into market impact or changing the world. Now, within Bell Labs, since the very start of Bell Labs, Bell Labs was created in 1925. Within a few years, Bell Labs already started pioneering collaborations with artists and musicians. And we collaborated with artists and musicians to push our technology way beyond where we thought we could. So for example, I won't go into it all, but some of the earliest examples, the first stereo transmission of sound was developed by Bell Labs in collaboration with a very famous conductor of the time, Leopold Stokowski. And the first notions of spatial audio, so how you move audio around in multiple channels were done back in the day. The first computer animation, computer graphics, uh, was developed at Bell Labs with artistic collaborators throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s. When was it? 40s, 50s. Amazing. 
yeah, 50s for the first computer animation, 60s. All that work was pioneering. So Bell Labs had this strong history all the way from day one of working very closely with artists. And I mean closely as an artists were embedded in Bell Labs as collaborators for many years at a time and pioneered all these really creative ways to use technology that were the forebears, again, of our digital existence today. So that's very exciting part of the history. And then what happened was that led up to a moment in the mid-60s where a very well-known Bell Labs engineer called Billy Kluver and another engineer called Fred Walhauer, they, in their personal time, became very interested in the artistic scene in New York. And they ended up bringing their skills as engineers and scientists to help some of those famous artists of the time enable their work and uh, actually create by using technology. And what ended up happening was it was so powerful and there's so much good in this that they created this seminal bringing together of engineers and scientists. It was called the Nine Evenings of Theatre and Engineering. It was in 1966. And it was the artistic and creative practice of artists like Rauschenberg, Cage, Whitman, Rayner, and you name it, like the biggest names of that time, or maybe even almost any time in art. And their creative ideas were brought to life by the technological solutions of the Bell Labs engineers. And they had these nine evenings of performance that were kind of groundbreaking at the time. And that then led to the creation of a not-for-profit organization called Experiments in Art and Technology. And that really was to think of that, that was a matchmaking organization across the world to bring engineers together with scientists, or with artists, I should say. So engineers and scientists matching them with artists, and they created a number of works around the world. That was around 1967 that began, and, and it kind of had a very a lot of momentum up until the early 70s, mid-70s, and then kind of fizzled out for natural reasons. And at the same time, our uh, collaborations in Bell Labs with the artistic community kind of fizzled out in the late 70s for very many reasons. And it wasn't until four years ago in 2016 that we rekindled this initiative. Amazing. I always use, uh, I think, the best example from this, uh, beside the nine evenings, which became legendary, I think, in the intersection of art and technology. I often use the project they also did in Osaka in uh, 1970. In the expo, in the example of uh, Fujiko Nakaya and Thomas Mee, that actually invented the first in the world artificial fog made by water and electricity. So I think that sometimes people don't understand how advanced the collaboration between art and technology was back in the days. We think that it's, it's happening today, which again kind of uh, invites the, the question, what makes you bring back this program in 2016, if I'm correct? Yeah, it was kind of a convergence of a few things. Prior to that, at the leadership level in Bell Labs, we were having conversations about what were we missing in our approach to our research and our technology development? Were we missing something in terms of creativity? Were we missing something in terms of a human connection? Um, were we, was there dimensions of how we would think about the intersection of humanity and technology that we were completely blind to? So we're just having questions, you know, are we missing something in how we're hiring people? Are we missing something in the experience and skills of the people we're hiring? Are we missing something in how we're bringing those people together or not bringing them together? So lots of kind of strategic conversations around collaboration and knowledge sharing and skill sets and experience and lack of diversity and those critically important topics. And then we get into 2016 and it was the 50th anniversary of the nine evenings that we just referenced. And a lot of people around the world, but in particular in New York, because that's where the nine evenings took place, a lot of people approached us if we could attend events to celebrate, if we could partner with them for events. And honestly, when we got these requests, we had no idea what the nine evenings was. We barely wow. knew about EAT. We had institutionally forgot about it largely. I mean, this was something that happened in the 60s and 70s. Wow. Bell Labs moved on, continuing our deeply tech stuff. But as I said, we kind of, we lost our connection with the artistic community largely. And, and institutionally, we just forgot about this part of the role that Bell Labs has played in bringing these two worlds to together. Excuse me. So we looked into this, we researched it, we started realizing, oh, yeah. this is extremely <laughs> interesting. Okay, let's learn more. And then we went to a number of meetups in New York. One of them, the one I remember the most, was run by the Red Bull Music Academy in New York City. And they invited like 60, 80 artists. And I think there was maybe 10 of us from Bell Labs. We just had conversations in, in the bar upstairs. 
And uh, every one of those conversations blew my mind, every one of them. And I realized that with all of my degrees and all of my education and all of my work experience, that there was a whole, there were whole dimensions to the world that I was completely blind to. So I became super intrigued by the way these people thought, the way they spoke, the way they thought about technology and their kind of philosophical perspective and their much more human-centric perspective than I had encountered through the engineering and scientific disciplines. So that was a very good opening introduction to the artistic world. I was fascinated by it. And we decided then to, to kind of move that forward a bit and have some more conversations. And there was one organization in particular that every person we met with then that night just resonated with us. And that was the New Museum, yeah. who were a contemporary museum in New York. So we decided to have a couple of follow-up sessions with them. Anyway, it's a long story. I mean, we did lots of things, but we realized that this was the dimension we were missing. We realized that we should really kickstart a new initiative to dip our toes back into the art and tech water. And we decided to name it Nokia Bell Labs EAT, Experiments in Arts and Technology, in honor of the activities that took place in the 60s and 70s that Bell Labs were a critical part of. Amazing. I didn't know this part of the story, and I'm very happy you are sharing it with us. I kind of know Julia that led the New Inc. pretty well, and I always recommend people uh, to check New Inc., which is a startup incubator owned by museum. Often it seems a crazy idea that a museum has a startup incubator, but the moment you get to know how artists work with technology, for me, it's just natural that museums will have their own startup incubators. You started to speak about these connections with the artists, and you coming from a pure engineering background, and interested to hear from you, what is the difference between artists and engineers when it comes to think about technology? Oh, well, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, there, there's so many in general, uh, uh, never mind focusing on technology. But the biggest one probably is artists, for me, think about technology through the lens of humanity. Engineers and scientists, for the vast majority, and I'll, I'll speak from my experience, having worked with all disciplines, having managed teams across all disciplines, having worked with many, many universities across the world, knowing, worked with lots of startups, worked with other big corporations, right? So when I, so when I say this from my experience, I mean it's quite a broad experience. The vast, vast majority, and I would categorize it 99.9% of the engineering and scientific community in the hard sciences, right, would say, of course, not the social science, but the hard sciences, they don't even contemplate the effect their technology might have on humanity. So they think about algorithms and they think about equations and they think about product design and they think about revenue and they think about solving a technical problem, a technological problem or a challenge. But they never, ever sit back and say, oh, wait a minute, in five years time, how might this algorithm affect humanity or our humanity? How might this equation that might lead to a product that goes to market how might that harm humanity how might it harm humanity in the near term and the long term how might this be used in different ways do harm to do bad to do damage they're just so obsessed with solving the technical problem and by the way i'm not attributing personal blame to an individual this is how we are trained as yeah. engineers and scientists this is how companies employ us and pay us our salaries to solve technical problems so that they can generate revenue from that This is pervasive across the engineering and scientific subjects, the harder sciences, I should say, uh, quite largely. And that there's a big difference. By their very nature, artists tend to think about everything through the lens of humanity, I find. Or I would put it this way, the vast majority of artists naturally are inclined to think about everything through the lens of humanity. So it can be philosophy, it can be art itself, it can be technology, it can be relationships, it can be anything, but they're very human-centric in their approach and engineers and scientists just are not. And what are other differences that you see? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure at some stage you, people often ask me about, <laughs> they often say, I often say, I don't believe engineers and scientists are creative or as creative as artists. Now, Let me clarify that. I, I think there's a different type of creativity. Now, I come from the world of engineering and scientific creativity. When I say that I don't think engineers or scientists are as creative as artists, it's because I'm inspired by the different way that artists create, because it's something that I didn't know. I've become to know it a bit better, and I knew the way that engineers and scientists create, right? So that's why I kind of exaggerate the difference. But what I would say is 
engineers and scientists have a bounded or a constrained creativity. So there's a problem set before us, either by ourselves or someone else. And then we try and find the easiest, quickest way. And as, as I talk about sometimes, picking the smallest solvable chunk of that problem, and we become super focused on that. And we solve that problem using known equations, known frameworks, known theoretical concepts, right? And then we try and solve a, a known problem often through no, these known techniques. It's a very bounded, very constrained type of creativity. Or honestly, what I would say, and it gets me in trouble sometimes, <laughs> I don't view that as creativity really in the same sense as when I look at an artist. An artist, in comparison, is completely unbounded, completely unconstrained. They're not using algorithms and equations that completely 100% dictate how you go about solving a problem. They can use anything before them. They can create new things. They don't just focus on a certain paradigm or framework or algorithm, and they, they think about the world in, in a totally different way. It's extremely divergent and expansionist in their approach, and they just absorb ideas from everywhere they possibly can, and then they connect those ideas in super interesting ways. So it's the most unbounded, most unconstrained form of creativity in comparison to the sciences. And that's a really big difference that I have found. Yeah. Now, what happens is some, some engineers and scientists that are naturally creative really get upset with me. And I say that, and it's true that there are a small number of individuals that think more like an artist. But when I describe it, the vast majority of the population, 99.9%. And I have a, another interesting question. So where do you think they are actually similar, artists and engineers? They're all human beings. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, the similarities are kind of ones that don't particularly interest me. I'll put it that way. It's something that I don't focus on too much. I'm, I'm far more interested in how they're dissimilar, but how I might bring them together to work in meaningful ways. Because the dissimilarity is so extreme, it causes a lot of natural tension and, and barriers in communication and collaboration and everything, right? So I'm super interested in how they're dissimilar. But how they're similar is, or And how we select our artists is that they, both sides, engineers, scientists, and artists, want to do something new. They want to be impactful. They want to put their own personal positive dent in the world, typically. And they want to be seen as the best of what they do. So when I talk about how I bring the, how I uh, bridge the gap between these two sides and how I make dissimilarities become something positive, I bring in artists and I bring in engineers that have that commonality, that They're very good at what they do, and they can see how the other side is very good at what they do. So naturally now they have, a, they have an affinity towards yeah, each other because there's clearly world-leading competency. And then we bring them together such that both want to have impact, and they understand that if they do things a different way, that's what's going to give them impact. So now they're open to embracing something different, even though they might not understand that or understand how to work within that difference, but they're at least open to it because they can see, ah, I need to do things differently. I need to think differently. That's how I will differentiate myself as an engineer or scientist. So I speak to the commonality when I bring them together, but I'm far more interested in how they're dissimilar than how I bridge that gap. Yeah, very, very interesting. It's kind of a bring another question. You just spoke about these similarities. And one of the things I always claim is that innovation happens at the intersection of disciplines. And as a VP of uh, Research and Innovation in uh, Bell Labs, you actually need to create this environment. And I wonder, besides kind of creating or bringing together people that are not similar but have something in common, what are the other things you think companies or managers should uh, do when they think about developing a culture of innovation or at least the environment that supports it? Yeah, so this is a very loaded question. <laughs> I have a couple of kind of taglines that I use when I talk about innovation or innovation strategy. So the first thing is, if everything is innovative, then surely nothing is. So you first have to understand what innovation is. Innovation is not business as usual. Innovation is not just R&D. Innovation is not just having a corporate venture capital arm to your business. Innovation is all of those things and more, right? So you have to first really understand what innovation is. The second kind of high-level concept I talk about is how I truly believe innovation, or to create an innovative culture, is a culture change initiative. 
if you're in an organization that is not inherently innovative um, and you want to instill culture of innovation and creativity in that organization, whether it's academia, a startup, a big business, it doesn't matter, a museum, you need to understand culture change. You need to understand culture design, culture change implementation and execution. If you do not treat this as a culture change initiative, you are going to fail. And by the way, 80% of culture change initiatives fail yeah. because they're very difficult. Guess what the percentage of innovation initiatives fail? 80%. So it's not it, a coincidence it's... that both are exactly the same failure rate. So first of all, you'd have to, at a high level, and I could talk about this for hours, you need to understand what innovation is. It's not a buzzword. You don't create an innovative culture without investment and without time. It takes a long time, a lot of investment in your people and your processes, everything to get to an innovation culture. So you need to understand what it is, what it is not, very importantly. You need to treat it as culture change. Otherwise, it's going to fail. And even then, unless you do it really well, it's still likely to fail. So you need to understand that if you're a, an executive in an organization and you want to create this innovation initiative, and I just did air quotes there for anyone that might not <laughs> Um, the final thing is you, you really, and this is part of the culture change, but I will call this out explicitly. You really need to understand your current culture. You have to understand the culture that you want to create in a certain amount of time, X amount of years from now. You need to understand that gap or that delta. And you need to very smartly, very strategically put a plan in place that in a phased way, in a gradual way, fills that gap and converts your culture from where it is today to where it needs to be. It cannot happen overnight. It cannot happen with a click of a finger. Yeah. It cannot happen just because some super powerful executive says, the chief innovation officer or the SVP of something comes in and says, clicks their fingers and says, let this be, and I want to see change in six months. That is complete nonsense. And, and anyone that does that, that's a clear indicator that they don't actually understand what innovation is. They don't actually understand the principles of culture change. And they don't really understand where it is that their culture is and where they want it to be. And they're just doing check the box exercise to make themselves look cool. You know, it's again, as you said, it's, we can dive deep to this uh, topic. Um, so, so, so interesting. I'm interested. Let's assume we have someone that understands that it's uh, what is innovation, understand that it's a culture. What is one or two things that you do in order to inject it in your people? Let's talk about people. Because one way is just as you said, taking an engineer, connect her with an artist. Find the commonality, but more importantly, the dissimilarity and let them work together. So as you mentioned, they want to create something new. What is the other thing that you do in order to instill this way of thinking in your people? Yeah, well, there, there's a number of uh, critically important things. First of all, before you instill anything, you have to give the space and you have to give them the freedom and you have to give them the trust that if we're asking them to make this change, we're going to give them the time and we're going to invest in them to do it. So a lot of innovation initiatives, what happens is you have your day job, nine to Monday to Friday, nine to five at a minimum. You're already super busy with 10,000 projects you have to deliver and you're already completely overloaded. And then some executive comes to you and says, <laughs> hey, I want, I want you to help with this innovation project or innovation initiative. And you're expected to do that in the time, spare time you don't have and with zero extra investment in your training or yeah. anything. You really have to, and this is why innovation efforts fail, and this is why people come to despise the next innovation initiative, because they've been through it so many times. So you have to you have to plan this out carefully with people processes, HR processes. You have to give them the time. The ma their, their management chain needs to be supportive of this and, and help them along this journey. And you have to let them know that, and this is something we do in, in Bell Labs quite a lot, you're going to work on this project. You're going to do this thing. We guarantee you that your previous job is there when you're done. Whenever you finish and you come back and you tell us, I'm ready to come back to my old job, it's there for you. You have to reduce the risks. You have to put all that in place to build trust and not have them fearful of this initiative. Help them understand that it's not just a check the box. You have to put all that in place first, right? Now, then when you get that in place, and if you convince them to be part of it, then you have to start helping them see the world through a different lens, see the world in a different way. because. They've come typically, most people that are that you want to bring into an innovation culture are not naturally innovative, yeah. or at least they haven't tapped into that side of them. So you have to break them out of their current ways of thinking, their current ways of doing. You have to help them very quickly understand that almost at an extreme, see the world exactly the opposite, do everything exactly the opposite you, the way you've been doing and give them the freedom to. 
to do that. And you have to try as quickly as you can, but in a way that's comfortable for them, break them out of what they know as the status quo. So that's the first kind of two ways, I would say. Then aside from that, it's all about how people think, bringing them into contact with different thinkers, different people, different experiences, different cultural backgrounds. I mean, one part of it is what we do in, in the art program is bringing artists in. But it's not just that as art is different to tech. It's that within the artistic base we have, we have, an, a, we have I mean, I don't mean to say a complete rep- representation of the breadth of humanity, but we come as close as we possibly can within the size of our program. So the level of diversity that we have, and I call it diversity of everything, or full spectrum diversity, the level of diversity we have on a human level within our art program, because of the artists we work with, means that we're exploding the concept of diversity and we're exploding the concept of cognitive diversity because of the extreme levels of diversity that we embrace within our artistic collaborators. So you see, we're touching on the concept of diversity in, in almost every dimension you can imagine, as much as we can within the size of our program. I'm not saying we represent all of humanity, but we do our best to try and represent as much as we can. And that level of all these differences, all these different ideas and ways of thinking and ways of living, all of that is then coming into contact with the art and technology ideas and ways of living. And all of that, through that collision of all those differences is where new properties emerge. And that's what innovation and creativity is. I think you're doing amazing work in the different uh, projects because not only that you have diversity of gender, of professions, or cognitive diversity, you also work with different technologies. I want to speak with you maybe uh, aspect that everyone is obsessed with and everyone talks about experience. And there is a beautiful project that you did, the lab, with one singer that actually reignite experience. And I always say for people that are interested in experience, why they need to talk with artists? Because for me, artists are not product-oriented. They are experience-oriented. And the moment you are experience-oriented, your whole mind works that way. How I can make it experiential for the user? And I want to hear from you some of the projects that you have in the lab. So a number of years ago, we worked on a project with BT, and she's very interested in how she can leverage technology to build a better connection with her fans, with her audience. And she'd worked on a number of different technologies prior to working with us to kind of engage people in a, in a more interesting, more human way. Music that really resonates with you is some kind of magic. You feel present, you feel alive, that's what it does. Raw Space will be the world's first live 360 augmented reality album stream. This concept that the artist thinks about experiences, and, and you know why that is? Because it's part of the human condition. I mean, think about our humanity, think about how we go through lives. Everything is, is an experience. It's either a mundane experience that we've come to know, or it's a new experience that kind of excites us, or maybe puts fear into us. But the brain is always seeking out new experiences, right? So it's looking for patterns to make sense of patterns. And then where can you have some awe and inspiration within that? And how can we grow and learn? And, and that's why things that we do every day for our lives become embedded and we don't, we're not even conscious of it anymore. But then something different, something changes, and all of a sudden your brain lights up. Right? So it's just part of the human condition. That's what I said earlier, that that's, artists are highly tuned into that side of it. So with Beatty, for example, there's a number of years ago, I mean, things like Spotify and, and online streaming services were taking off, but they're not, they're not that old, right? They're only around a few years. This is back in 2016 or 17, maybe. Um, she was super interested. When she was younger, she used to get a, a vinyl, a record, right? A vinyl with, a, with the cover of the album, and she'd open it up in a certain way, very physical and tangible, and she'd read the outside of the cover and she'd open up the sleeve and she'd read the artist's notes about each song and there'd be pictures on the inside and then she'd put the the vinyl on the record player and she'd play and she'd listen to the music and read the notes of the artist at the same time and she had this sonic experience that was combined with this tangible physical ceremonial experience like the ceremony of you buying a thing and opening the thing and reading the thing right so she became very interested in then how all of that has changed in our modern digitally streamed age right so we're listening to spotify mp3 compressed music streamed over some digital interface where's the ceremony where's the tangibility where's the physicality where's that connection between you and the rest of the artist's thoughts and work 
So with a project we worked on with BT called Raw Space, the whole idea was how can we experiment with bringing ceremony and physicality and tangibility to a digitally streamed musical album? So, for example, I mean, we ended up doing, and I, I won't go into it in too much detail, but we ended up doing work many years ago with, art, uh, with uh, augmented reality and virtual reality and how we connected people with her song and how we, we built a virtual landscape that represented uh, Beatty's imagery in her mind's eye and she thought about the song. We built that out in through AR and VR and then you were, able, you were able to enter a channel on YouTube where the music was playing live from a record player in a very famous room we have in New Jersey, a special sound room. And you would enter in a certain moment in time and you would be engrossed in these visualizations that she created and you could explore them in 360. And sometimes the visuals move fully virtual, sometimes augmented, sometimes fully physical of the room and all these kind of things. And we really try to embrace a multi-sensory experience to bring people and connect, especially connect people deeper to Beatty as the artist and, and bridge this gap between artist and audience. And that was one of the first projects we did when we kickstarted this program a number of years ago. And that's just a, an example that if when you work with a technologist, an engineer, or scientist, and you talk about AR and VR, they're going to try and build you the next version of a VR goggles that might be <laughs> slightly smaller in size or that might the battery might run a little bit longer. But when are they ever going to consider the depths of the human experience when they've designed that technology? And that is a prime example of the inspiration we get as technologists from working with an artist. Amazing. Another thing that, you know, everyone obviously speak is empathy and how we need to create technologies that empathize with the user, make sense to them, etc. I wonder, do you have projects that actually explore empathy or how to foster it that you are doing with artists? Yeah. Let me back up a little bit. Let me share my kind of high-level thoughts on empathy because I agree it's become a little bit of a buzzword especially it's come out of design thinking, right? So in the design thinking methodology, one of the pillars, I believe, is to empathize. And they talk about, quote unquote, human-centric design principles. Now, when I see design thinking being applied, and when I see the, the work of and the output of designers, and when I'm part of the design process with designers, I don't think they take the concept even close to far enough. Or I would say another way, I find it very superficially used, right? So what they say is, oh, let's try and understand the user. And then they, they put a user in some user testing environment and they ask them to use their product. And then they see if they like the product or will they change the UI or the UX or will they move a button or change a button color or something. That's all fine. I mean, design has a critical role in doing that. That's not empathy for me. That's just understanding, does a human being like my UI, my UX, or the color of my button, or do they like this, the, the click of the button when I press it? I mean, that's not empathy. That's just user testing. There's already a name for that. Empathy would be, what is going on in this person's life? What, what are the core traits of our humanity? What are the core traits of the human condition? What are the things that, in particular, make us human, generally? Now, within that, culturally, socially, personally, how does this person fit within those traits of the human condition more broadly? What is it about their life, their existence, the way they see the world that makes them want to or not want to engage a technology or a product a certain way? How do I understand that at a human level? Not if they click a button or not if they can navigate my website through three clicks or five clicks. No, it should be speaking to their humanity. Now, the reason people don't do that is because that's exceptionally complex. I'm not saying that's easy, right? So when you have a generalized framework like design thinking, the power of it is that it's generalized. A lot of people can use it, but its power is also its weakness, that you miss all the nuance and you miss all the complexity of humanity. So first of all, I just want to say, when I think about empathy, it's about understanding our humanity broadly, as broadly as you can, what makes us special as humans, but then also thinking about the individual. How are you different from me? What is your lived experience? How do you see the world? How can I develop an experience that will actually tap into that for you, but at the same time tap into something different for me. And you think That's, this is where art comes in? I believe art can significantly help with that, uh, or at least it's helped me in my thinking of this quite considerably. Because as I said earlier on, they think about humanity and the intersection of humanity and technology in a totally different way. And everything they do, in my view, is through the lens of our humanity. So they might not speak about the human condition. They might not be able to call out the traits to you necessarily. But in the back of their minds, almost subconsciously, 
everything they do is is through that lens. So that certainly helps that different way of thinking. So when I think about empathy, it's about understanding individuals, the human condition, what is different between you and me and everyone else. Uh, how do I understand the differences, but how do I tap into the commonalities? And how do I design an experience such that you will get as much out of it as me, but what you get out of it is not the same as me? And that's extremely challenging. I'm not saying it's easy. So empathy, that, that's one kind of comment about empathy. The other thing about empathy is my favorite definition of empathy, people, I think, always mix up sympathy and empathy. Empathy is that sympathy is you can kind of understand something from someone else's perspective, right? In my view, empathy is that you're moved to action to do something different because of that. It's a very simple thing to say, oh, yeah, I kind of get where you're coming from. I can see the pain you're going through. You know, I've kind of been through that. Okay, now bye. Talk, see you later. Talk to you some other time. That's sympathy. Empathy is, you know what, I, I feel where you're coming from. I think I can help you in this way. I'm going to physically act. I'm going to change something about myself. I'm going to help you. I'm going to put effort in to change the situation. That's empathy. How do you design solutions and experiences or even products? If you're talking about empathy, I mean, if that's your goal, how do you do that in a way that people are moved to actually act and change and put energy in and that they're going to do it themselves such that they might help someone else? That's what empathy is. Now, I don't hear anyone talking about it that way, certainly not in technology, certainly not in product design, certainly not in design thinking. They use it in the most kind of superficial way, which honestly frustrates me a little bit. But at the same time, I can understand why they why they do that. So when, when we talk about empathy, our research vision, our long-term research vision is to develop ways for humans to communicate on an emotional level such that they can better understand each other, such that we can break down the barriers that exist. And the reason we do that is because I truly believe the spoken word and the written word, like the way we are communicating now, is inherently limited with respect to how you can share emotions. And I think then with technology, we make that even worse, right? We take something that is already fundamentally limited with respect to emotion sharing, and then we turn it into emojis, or we turn it into 140 characters of text, right? Or, or we do a video call, right, where we're pretending like this is the same as us being in person when it absolutely is not. We've, we've lost all of the other ways of uh, us building a connection because of the way we are built as humans when we mediate this relationship through technology. So. Our big long-term research vision and a lot of the strategic glue or the vision that binds all of our activities is when we partner with a, a university, a museum, an artist, it doesn't matter. We're always thinking, how can this person or this institute help us ask the right questions of human connection and help us build solutions towards solving that problem? And when I think about empathy, I think about emotion transfer and sharing emotions between people and going beyond the limitations of the spoken word and the written word. And emotion transfer is just one important pillar of empathy in general. But empathy should be something that helps you understand other people and then moves you to action. That's my kind of definition of empathy. Wow, I think I cannot stress how I agree with everything that you say. I always say that design thinking, it's a great tool, but at the end, it's a tool. And I think that art mentality or artistic mindset as I defined it is actually by naturally is more inclined to understand that that's why I see often artists as social leaders they are using their art as a vehicle to highlight human conditions to spot lights on things we don't want to see uh, and kind of asking us the hard questions that we would like to ignore. And it's fascinating the way you put it all together. I think it's super articulated. So how do you bring it into the project that you did with the artist? How did you tackle empathy or maybe empathetic communications in the different projects that you had? Yeah, so in each project, we kind of touch on a different element of it. And we don't have a single project where we've brought it all together. That's why it's a long-term research vision and that's why it's very challenging so this is what we're working towards and in fact we're, we're, we're starting a project i i only feel comfortable now after many many years of asking questions and many many collaborations and speaking to so many people from all walks of life and all disciplines that now i feel like we've we know the right questions and once you know the right questions you can start thinking about what are the right answers and we're about to start testing some of those answers we're at the very early stages but one example a project we did with an artist called lisa park 
project is called Blooming. My name is Lisa Park. Um, I'm an artist. I've been using technology in my work to make the um, use like sensor technology as part of my art practice to use that data uh, to create audiovisual interactive installation. So Blooming is a piece that I did uh, last year during my residency program at uh, Nokia Bell Labs and uh, New Inc. Uh, from New Museum. Her previous work before she worked with us was all about putting sensors on people in social environments. In other words, couples doing couple-y thing, right? So uh, listening to music or, or hugging or whatever. And she would try and make visible the invisible social signals between those people. So she would put sensors on them like a heartbeat sensors or a brainwave sensor or so, something. It doesn't really matter. And then she would monitor those signal changes when people interacted with each other. And then she would make that invisible connection visible by sonifying it, turning it into sounds or music, or by visualizing it by doing something else. So we were super interested with Lisa's philosophy and how she thought about the human connection with respect to making visible these invisible human signals or relationships. And with Lisa, we worked with her and we asked her to if she could really focus on the aspect of touch. So what is it about touch, physical contact, that is so important to the human condition? So we worked with Lisa for well over a year, very interesting project. Eventually, we, we came on this project called Blooming, where she wanted to have people enter an exhibit, an, an artistic experience. She wanted them to physically touch, but when they touched, they would make something change in the environment. And what she ended up creating was a type of holographic cherry blossom. Um, Lisa Park is from South Korea originally, but she works in the U.S., and the cherry blossom has immense spiritual and cultural significance in that region. And it reminded her of home and reminded her of her lost relationships with her family and so on. So what you would do is you would enter this exhibit space. It was quite dark. You would stand on these very basic sensor pads and up to four people, but had to be more than one. There always had to be at least two people to make some kind of a connection. And if you, when you physically touched, held hands, hugged, whatever, put your hand on their back, kiss, and um, the cherry blossom would activate and grow in front of you in different ways, depending on how you made physical contact with other people. And yeah, people, I mean, this looks stunning on the video. You can just look it up online, but to experience this, what takes it to a whole new level. And, and people broke down and cried. We had husbands and wives that cried. We had them doing it with their kids and they cried. We had complete strangers that got extremely emotional. We had the feedback we got was exceptional that people realized that this part of our humanity has been quite substantially lost in our modern existence because we spend so much time on our smartphones and our tablets and our computers and whatever, watching video streaming services on our TVs, that the level of human connection, physical human connection that we have in modern society is nowhere near, especially in the first world, we'd say, is nowhere near what it used to be in the past. And of course, think about 2020 and the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's gone from something that was already a low level to zero now. By necessity so we're completely missing this and lisa's work and again this is one of those examples of the power of the artist not just true and by the way the technology had nothing to do with it the technology as you said was just a tool that allowed us to make visible these connections in a certain interesting way but the whole experience that lisa set up how you entered the space the lighting the sound uh, the activation of the cherry blossom in a certain way how people felt compelled to connect and how they were moved emotionally after they connected and that whole thing only an artist can do that and i can tell you when i work with technologists and engineers and scientists and we talk about physical touch and, and usually it's through the terminology of haptics right so like the way your phone vibrates in your hand and people think work a lot about uh, in haptics for virtual reality they would have just built these humongously big robotic clunky haptic gloves <laughs> and these vr yeah. controllers and they never, never would have gone down this path that we went down with Lisa because of that artistic perspective. Yeah, first of all, it's a great uh, moment to mention. I will add the links to the show notes for everything you mentioned. Even the photo that you use when you want to show the technologies we are developing for human touch, these big unhuman technologies. So I'm interested to hear from you. What do you think are the main challenges we have with technology today and how artists can actually help us solve it? Yeah, a lot of technology today is kind of um, software-based, we'll say. I mean, there's a lot of hardware, but the things that move fast out in the market are software-based. So the issues I have with technology is that practically everyone 
that develops technology is is blind, completely blind to how it will affect humanity because of the way we're trained. And practically every executive in business is completely blind to the negative downstream effects. The reason, like executives in business are work on a quarterly basis because of market pressures. Some of them can see a year out, but they're they're very short term. They're only in the role a few years. They're super interested in those short term incentives and they're under immense pressure by the market. So they're the ones that are making the decisions on where money gets invested and what technologies go to market. They're the ones making the decisions and they're completely blind to the downstream consequences. They're blind by their training and they're blind by the pressures put on them by the market and shareholders. And then you have the people developing the technology, the engineers, R&D, who are completely blind to the consequences. So we have the makers, the decision makers and the makers that are absolutely blind to the effects that their technology will have on humanity. And that's a serious concern for me. We have to change that. We have to change that through how people are educated in the STEM subjects. We have to change that through expectations on leadership and business. And in a way, ultimately, I would hope that somehow the market actually starts putting different pressures on leaders and companies that lead to more sustainable action, because the market itself is just driven by greedy near-term incentives. So that's one. Now, a different kind of way I think about it is, you know, I was trained in the physical sciences. I'm an aeronautical engineer, so designing airplanes. You know, and, and I, you know, have I work with civil engineers, people design bridges, whatever. I, you know, I kind of know all that. The mechanical engineering, the fluid engineering. In my training, when you developed a solution, it had to have safety factors in place. So I design an airplane wing. That airplane wing has to be able to carry three times the maximum possible load you might ever perceive in a storm condition, right? You build a bridge. That bridge has to be able to carry 1.5 or two times more than the maximum possible load that could ever sit on it. And that bridge must last 200 years. And I could go on and on, right? There's these safety factors, or I would call them human safety factors, right? You don't just design an airplane, put it up there, put people in it, and then have it fail and say, oh, we're going to fail fast and learn. (laughs) Complete nonsense, right? Now, yes, think about the software world. That's exactly what they do. They throw out biased algorithms and they throw out algorithms that they don't even understand themselves, right? And they're throwing out these models and products in a software world. And this nonsense from Silicon Valley, where it's about failing fast and learning, it is the greatest harm, I think, to modern society that I've heard in recent times. And no one is saying anything to these people because its market is doing well. I mean, shareholders and share prices are soaring. And executives are getting very big bonuses and R&D people are being paid a lot of money because there's such market need. So who's going to call them on this? Because this notion of failing fast is, I think, extremely harmful. And you, I believe that the, we'll say the computer sciences or the software development or a business that relies on software substantially, they should be forced to have human safety factors built into their technology and they should be accountable. You can't just put an algorithm out, algorithm out to the world and it be biased against certain people and you stay in business. As far as I'm concerned, that's the equivalent of putting an airplane in the skies that falls out of the sky. Again, I think over here, how artists work with technology, and there is one artist, Ben Grosser, that actually in 2012 understood that dislikes actually create kind of anxiety. So he developed his own dematricator and basically removed the likes from uh, Facebook Instagram, I think, or Twitter. So you can actually just focus on what you are writing or what you're reading instead of focusing on, oh, I didn't get enough likes and what does it say about me? So again, I think it's bring everything you you, you just said about artists, how they look at it from a human perspective, how they ask difficult questions, how they actually create a different experiences, allowing us to see different angles. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned something interesting, maybe just prior to pressing record. We'll say the difference between artistic output versus artistic process or thinking or mindset. I mean, a lot of people see a painting and you either like it or you don't. Right. But what you might not realize, and I've been very lucky to work very closely with artists, is the thought process and the mindset and the perspective behind that piece of work. That piece of work is just the manifestation of an entire way of thinking. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the downsides I have with art is that often art is presented to general community in quite an esoteric, abstract, artsy way. Yeah. And you look at a painting and you either appreciate it or you don't. A lot of the general community actually might not appreciate fine art of, of any form. But what's super interesting to me is you, if you get talking to that artist and you learn from them on their perspective and what motivated that particular piece of art and how that art is an evolution of their own mind and consciousness and living. And, and then that opens your mind and you think, wow, there's so much going on in this artist's mind that I wasn't even aware of in my own life. And how, how might I think about myself in a different way because of how they think about the world? And that's, that is, for me, it's the process and the mindset and the perspective that we tap into. And then the output, by the way, these projects I tell you about, the output is secondary. We, we believe we, if we collaborate well and we work with good artists, we're going to have a good output. And the output is good for us. We get to show the world, right? That's not what motivates our work. Our, what motivates our work is the exchange of knowledge and the creation of new ideas and the learning in both sides, right? From the artist to the engineer, but the engineer teaches the artist in different ways. And it's that combination of all that knowledge and all those new ways of thinking is what uh, drives this program. And then interesting artwork is just a kind of bonus on the cake. I have a question. Why we are so obsessed with STEM education and not starting to think broadly and saying STEM, let's bring the art into the science, engineering, technology and math? Yeah, well, I, I do think that the STEAM movement has got a lot of momentum in it, and it does seem to be growing globally, which is great to see. I believe STEM is so popular, and I go back to, again, market pressures and pressures on executives. Um, the future of humanity is technology. Um, everything we do from this day forward, everything, every business, every everything is probably going to involve technology to a large extent. Every company in the future will be a technology company, whether that's what they call themselves or not, right? So we're so dependent on technology and we co-evolve. Of course, we create technology. If you want to be successful in, in any form of technology, you need technologists, you need engineers, you need people highly specialized in these subjects. And that's why STEM is so popular, that these people, there's a desperate demand for their skills, for their brains. They're trained in a certain way to use equations and algorithms at speed to generate revenue, to provide some differentiation in the marketplace. And again, as long as businesses require this and as long as the market demands it and as long as executives, certain things are expected of the executives, then that the way STEM subjects are taught in college and the way people in STEM are expected to apply themselves in their work, that's not going to change. Now, there is a movement in bringing the A and the arts in, but is that being taught at university level? Largely, no. no. It's only in a few universities that are kind of scratching the surface. Yeah. So as long as people are being trained in a certain way through college, through education, uh, either high school or whatever, or third level, then the world won't change. So that needs to change first. And then how the expectations on executives and business until that changes, it's not going to change either. So there's kind of both sides of the equation that need to be addressed at the same time. And until that happens, people can have all these STEAM initiatives they want. They can bring the A in all they want. But there's such extreme market forces and market pressures out there that um, I don't really see it making a meaningful impact anytime soon unless we take a bigger look, a more holistic look at what's going on in the world in general. Yeah, maybe changing our own MBA programs into yes. bringing this uh, or just listening to people like you that are actually doing it and start to think about it. I agree. I think that's one quick way, right? MBAs are typically future leaders. So if you can educate them, even though they're often later in life, I mean, you're not dealing with teenagers, right? But if you could educate them the right way, they might be the ones in time to drive that change in business. But we also need to be educating teenagers and you know, young college students and executives and MBA students and every, everyone in between. And the other thing is for me personally, what, what, I, what frustrates me about the lack of this globally is, one, I've had so much personal growth from it that I wish others could have that. Like I, as I said, I had an undergraduate and a PhD and I did an executive MBA um, a number of years ago. And I had so much experience in my job and I worked with so many different companies and startups and universities, you name it, right? I just had, I was very privileged and a lot of exposure to a lot of things and a lot of people. And as much as I thought I knew, I realized I knew nothing when I started working with artists. They had this whole other way of looking at the world 
And I've personally grown so much as a person uh, because of that. And I am frustrated that others can't have that opportunity as well. And I, and I think they should. And then also I think about the frustration I have on the way technology is developed and the way we as people are expected to consume technology. And it's completely missing that connection to our humanity. And that also frustrates me. And I, and I believe this intersection of art and technology can solve that. And by the way, not to the detriment of revenues and not to the detriment of the market. I mean, you can still do all that, but at least let's consider our humanity. Yeah, for the spirit, totally. Yeah. I mean, everyone speaking about employee engagement and employee happiness and employee without understanding how powerful art and artist can play that role of shaping a culture, not only creative culture, I would say fulfilled and satisfied culture in organization. You play the fiddle. And I'm interested, when did you start to play the fiddle? I started playing the fiddle, I think, when I was 11. I, I am, I'm from a very musical family. My father is a professional musician. He plays what's called the button accordion. Uh, my mother is a professional musician. I have two brothers that are extremely good musicians. So I grew up in a musical region geographically, and I grew up in a musical family. And music was just always around me from a very young age. Something that comes so natural to me, I don't, I don't think about it analytically. I don't study it. I just play it. Um, and that's often people ask me, has, has that influenced my, the work I do today? And I find that a very difficult question to answer. I, I think it clearly has implicitly. I mean, it must have, right? My brain is wired a certain way because of that music. But when I went to college, I became an engineer. I did focus that I, I stopped playing for quite some time. And, and I, I see myself today as, as an engineer or technologist. I don't see myself as a musician. And sometimes I can go six months without even remembering that I play the fiddle, we'd say. So I clearly has something there, but it's not an explicit motivator for the current work I do that I can speak to. It must have had an influence. Um, but yeah, that's the, my background. So I have a musical background from a musical family. And, and that afforded me a lot of interesting opportunities at a very young age. What I would say is I, I traveled around Ireland a lot at a very young age with my father playing music. And I traveled around some other parts of the world playing music, you know, at a very young age in my young teens, in mid-teens. And that opened up my eyes to the differences between people and culture and regions. And uh, I became quite interested in those differences, not fearful of them, but quite intrigued by why do the French like their bread that way? Or why do the French speak that way? Or why do they mean a thing that way? Or why do the Germans do it this way? Or why, do, why does a different region in Ireland that's only two hours drive from me like a different type of food that we don't really have in my region? And all these kind of things, super interested in, in those differences. Um, and I think that exposure to those differences across humanity at a very young age through music, I think has played a significant role in the way I think today, although it's probably taken me a long time to get there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. First of all, I want to say big, big thanks for sharing the amazing story of uh, EAT, the current EAT that uh, I learned about even uh, today, just from this conversation and your beautiful articulation. I think at least what I took from this conversation, the way you spoke about empathy was so beautifully articulated, at least for me. And I want to say big, big thanks again for your time. Well, thank you for having me and congratulations to you for promoting this type of topic, right? And getting this information out there. It's critically important that uh, you and others do more of this. So I'm very happy to share and have a fun conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks again for choosing us, listening to us and staying with us till now. We know that with so many content out there, you chose to listen to this one. So thank you for that. We are producing our podcast without any help. So if you find this valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it's really, really valuable for us. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode and Abigail Dyson, our wonderful intern who helped us put this podcast out there. If you are interested in working with us and upskilling your team's capabilities, if you are looking to hone and develop an artistic mindset, then I would recommend you to check our workshops and training. All the information is available on our website. You can subscribe 
to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Our previous shows are available on our website, www.theartian.com slash podcast. Each episode includes show notes, guest recommendations, videos, and other materials. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And you can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I will be here waiting for you on another episode of The Artian Podcast. Thank you.